Hello, Bookstew viewers, and welcome to the first post-quarantine episode of Bookstew. It's actually episode 80, which is very exciting. And um, to, you know, during the quarantine and the lockdown and everything scary that's been going on, um, we have probably all reached for some comfort food and for things that are familiar to us. And so happily here at Bookstew, I'm doing the same. And I'm bringing to you today an author who I actually was first in contact with back in 2014. I read an article about her in Vox online, and she was looking for beta readers, test readers, for a novel that she had been working on called St. Bridget's Cloak. And we had a book stew, and we talked about the book. And when we closed, I, we were, had fingers crossed that the novel would be sold. Well, it did sell, and so I'm going to reintroduce you to Anna Murray, who is the author of the now-titled Greedy Heart. Welcome, Anna, and it's wonderful to see you again. Oh, it's terrific to be here. Well, should, I, so or should I call you AP because now you're not... On the book cover, you're not Anna anymore. Um, why don't you tell us how you turned into AP for uh, publishing purposes? Well, you know, there's so many. It's so interesting when you start to think about marketing your book. This is, you know, after I sold the book, um, I and my publisher had a, just a real long discussion about you know where you position the book. It's, it's sort of think of a cereal aisle. Like, are you with the oatmeal or are you with the flavored oatmeal or are you with the, you know, organic cereal? So um, my book had a bit of a challenge because it's sort of a crossover book. And I think crossover books do tend to have challenges because it's a lot easier, I think, for marketers and people who run bookstores to say, okay, this is paranormal romance, you know, with, with vampires, you know, this is steamy. <laughs> So, so like the, there's these really specific categories. So there was this long discussion about what was my book. Initially, people I was I was talking to agents and publishers as women's fiction, um, which I know is a controversial whole category to begin with. Um, so because you know why does it have to be women's fiction? When my publisher bought my book, we had decided it was women's fiction, we would market it as women's fiction. And in your your listeners, viewers may sort of think, oh, I know what that is. That's a, a family story where somebody goes back to their hometown and on the cover of the book, there's like a pelican and two Adirondack chairs. And, like, and a woman shot from the back because walking down a dock or something like that, right? Yes, right. <laughs> So in my book, because it's sort of high concept and it's got, you know, it's got financial crashes and set in New York and, and hedge funds and billionaires, you know, it's not a small town. Um, so the first covers that came out weren't two Adirondack chairs, but they for sure read more feminine. So they maybe had more um, white field in the background. There's animals in the book. Maybe those were. So then, you know, my, my editor, my terrific editor, Atuli, owned by the name of Kelly Hunter, said, you know, I actually, the more I read this book and edit it, the more I think it's, it's, it's you know, fiction capital F. It's, it's not women's fiction. Um, so they redesigned the cover, and the cover's gorgeous. And then there was a big debate about my name, which is coming around to what you asked. And the thinking is, and 
you can like it or not like it, but the thinking is that men don't read books written by women. So I don't think by using your initials, you're fooling anybody, honestly, but you are sending, I mean, it's all about positioning. You are sending a message saying, this is in this certain sector of maybe a book that you would pick up at an airport, or if a, a, your wife gave you this book, you wouldn't be put off by it. So that's, that's the thinking about the initials. Again, I don't think you're fooling anyone, and I have lots of different opinions, but when you're trying to attract readers and, and, and let them know who the book is for, the thinking is, that helps. Well, um, I did uh, take a look at um, your, um, your website, and I saw that you had actually won an award um, from the Romance Writers of America called the Golden Heart Award, and it was for mainstream fiction with a central romance. So yep. I thought that was an interesting category because to me, one of the, one of the attractions of the book were, were the, was the financial maneuvering that went on. And uh, we can you know, get into talking more about the plot. I would almost say like um, it would be compared to books that have been written about the crash, even though it's fiction, you know, everything that happened could and did happen in the real financial crash. Yeah, for sure. I mean, people have called this like uh, Dutch house meets the big short, you know. So, <laughs> so that's it. And, and then other people have called it a romantic thriller, you know, talking, you know, getting to more of the of the love story. Uh, so, yeah, I think um, I, and the romance writers, interestingly, they had just reinstituted that category because, uh, you know, that the. the the category of romance is is described as, you know, the journey of the of the heroine is to find the one, right? Or the and, two in your case, or, right? <laughs> and in uh, in in women's fiction or general fiction, the 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 story is about finding yourself. So, I, I would say that this particular book has that that is absolutely true. The romance is an, it's there and it's fun, but it's not the central. Uh, the central goal of the heroine, the central goal of the heroine is money. Yeah, that which I thought was a very interesting approach too, because, you know, through the novel in the beginning, um, she's, she's certainly not likable, but as you reveal more and more about her background, um, she becomes more and more sympathetic. And I think uh, there's a part in the book that deals with horses and I'm, uh, I, you know, I'm looking at your backdrop and I love horses. And to me, that was one of the turning points of making her a much more sympathetic character. But let's go step back a little bit because I mean, you had a long journey with this novel and um, how did you finally uh, sell it or how did your agent sell it or how, what was that process like? Well, the, the novel was hard to sell, and debut fiction uh, is is super hard to sell. So that's just across the board. I'm now, you know, in a lot of writers' groups, and and it's um, it's it's not easy. In fact, it is a little bit easier if you are very much in a category Western romance or sci-fi or et cetera. So to sell a debut author whose category is a little shifty, like a little gray, uh, is tough. So I had. Um, gotten some advice by a terrific New York Times bestselling writer about how I could make my book. When the book was out on submission, 
people we were submitting it to literary uh, more literary imprints and they and the reaction we were getting is uh it's too commercial for us yeah. and also when this that was that was not so surprising but the other surprising thing was the the reaction people had to the unlikable heroine. I mean, I know she was unlikable, but I didn't know that people were going to react that way. I mean, it turns out a man can write Humbert Humbert all day long. Like he's right. But an unlikable woman, uh, problem. So I did a rewrite and I submitted the manuscript to the Golden Heart Awards that had just reinstituted this women's fiction category. And, um, much to my astonishment, I mean, I sort of went to the award ceremony in Denver and, you know, and there was like 5,000 people in a ballroom. I'm like, it's like my second conference with this girl. I'm like, wow, this is, and then I won. <laughs> and I was, I was astounded because I, and I really, you know, romance writers of America has gone through hell and back with all of this, um, uh, pro the problematic issues with diversity. But I for sure have to hand it to them that the judges for the panel picked you know, the book that was the, with the most unlikable heroine for a newly reinstituted character. It's like, okay, guys, good for you. Um, Cause you know, that takes guts. So that's, and at that moment at that conference, I got the first of a couple of nibbles that ended up being um, the sale of the book. So it was a long journey. Okay. And um, what, so, I guess I'm a lit, a tiny bit sad that St. Bridget's Cloak is not the title anymore, even though I understand that, you know, it's, I'm sure it, it, they would have assumed that something called that, people would have thought it was like, you know, uh, uh, the story of a saint or something like that. But um, can you tell our viewers a little bit about the concept of St. Bridget's Cloak? Because I think it's, really a, a wonderful feminist story and I had I had never heard of it before it's a it's a really minor saint story and the cat main character of my novel is named Delia and in the craziness of Irish nomenclature one nickname for Bridget is Delia so and I happen to uh, like the legend so Saint Bridget was a an early Christian saint in Ireland I think you know this is around 900 when uh, Patrick was, so she was contemporaneous with St. Patrick, the legend goes. And um, she sort of fell in love with the new religion and started to collect women around her who would do, you know, take care of the sick and take care of the poor. And so she collected a band of women. So she was the first, was the first convent and she was the first sort of mother of a convent and she went to the uh, the uh, local king and asked, uh, can I have a plot of land for my gals and we're gonna build a building and have a comment. And the king was like, come and say what? Like, you want me to like, give you my best land? Like for what? Like, who are you again? <laughs> and she then um, took off her cloak and said, well, will you give me as much uh, land as my cloak will cover? And, and he thought, well, sure lady. And so then her, girls each take a corner of the cloak and it stretches to the horizon and the king converts and Bridget gets her land. And uh, she's often pictured, one of the, inter the interesting things is that very powerful. And Bridget in, in um, iconography is often pictured with a bishop's hook. So not only was she the first 
as legend goes, the first woman to found a convent. But at the time, she sort of had this stature that was as if she was a female bishop. Wow, that's a great story. But so now I'm going to let that lead into um, a reading that you'll do for us, please, um, from the novel, which is no longer St. Bridget's Cloak, um, but Greedy Heart, if you would. Absolutely. And keeping in mind that, you know, the, the legend of St. Bridget is really about abundance and uh, space. And, and that's, the, that's the heart part as opposed to the greed part. But I'm going to re- I'm going to read you a, a passage. <clears throat> this is for, from early on in the novel, where the main character had we we know that Delia's had a rough past, and that has somehow turned her to become sort of a stone cold killer out for money. I mean, not literal killer, but you know, <laughs> out for money. <clears throat> and she's hearkening back to a time in her life where where she first turned against religion. So. I began toying with atheism when I was seven. I quickly pegged Jesus as a big red socialist. It was clear to me Christianity was a religion of the poor, by the poor, and for the poor. Throw a dart into any one of the gospels and you'd hit something about how great it was to be poor. Blessed were the poor. They stood to inherit the kingdom of God. Woe was coming unto the rich, not least because they were going to be squeezed through eyes of needles. I was rich and I liked it. So that was the end of the Jesus nonsense. Turns out I was just ahead of my time in the matter of religion. Hardly anyone believed in God anymore. God had been replaced by things like spinning and kale. Also, Reiki, Steve Jobs, airline points, landmark seminars, Ironman triathlons, colon cleansing, TED Talks, veganism, helicopter parenting, social media, and discovering Reykjavik. It struck me this could be problematic for society in the long run. If you cared about such things, my current chosen deity, money, was a concrete and reliable God. He had an exchange rate. (laughs) <laughs> that was great. And that also leads me to ask you, you mentioned uh, before we went on air that you had just finished recording the audiobook. So had you ever done an audiobook before? Not, not so to speak. I had uh, earlier on in my career, I started out as a teacher and I was the poor sop that got stuck with doing the musicals. And, you know, as a typical English teacher, you know, if you're in your 20s, early 30s, hey, young English teacher, how about you do the musical? And I've, I've done theater in my, in my own personal background. So when I started to think about doing the audio book, um, you know, I, I, I really questioned whether I should do the voice. And a couple of people in my life said, you know, you really maybe you should do the voice. And then as I started to practice read, I realized that it was absolutely going to drive me nuts if there was a line I wanted read in a certain way. Ah. Like the poor performance artist was gonna have to do it. No, it's like, no, no, go up on the word Reiki or whatever, you know, that I had enough theater in my background that I was gonna be picky enough. And also, you know, it's the pandemic. Every, as you know, you're out of your studio, everything was delayed. I wanted the audiobook out as as synchronously as possible with the release of the novel, which was April. 
So within three, four months, like that was my goal. And I wasn't going to be able to achieve that goal unless I, I actually, you know, jumped in and did some of my own uh, audio production. So all of that came together. I think that's, uh, it's amazing, but didn't you find it difficult? I have uh, volunteered and done reading for the blind and dyslexic. And at times that I've done it, I was even given familiar um, books to read, one of them, which, of which was Gone with the Wind, which I practically memorized when I was a teenager. But I found it very difficult to like not swallow at the wrong time. And I mean, just the technique, it's, it's, it's not just like, it's not even like speaking like we are now, it's, it's different. It is, um, and I was real. That was the piece of it that I was most uh, concerned about. But I did retain a production studio, so it turns out that audio and and, who, and they take out all the breaths and the swallowing, whatever. Oh, good. So to some degree, it's actually harder to do what you did, which is to read live to someone, and then you get time. I mean, you really can hit. You can hit stop if you're. You know, your voice gives out for the day. So, and they do an amazing job at turning, a, a as long as you have a good performance, it gets really nicely cleaned up. So I haven't heard the master yet. I finished recording. My husband converted a broom closet to all of our, the poor, the poor dog. Like, and you know, what gave me this idea? I never would have, because I took all his blankets, I never would have thought that that could be done, except that, you know, during the pandemic, we're, I listen, listen to NPR, like I'm sure many of your, your viewers do. And so I'm listening to NPR, and, and a couple of them are like, and so I'm broadcasting here from my closet in Los Angeles. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, like I'm sure they didn't expect to be in a closet, you know, broadcasting radio. So if they can do it and get a good sound quality, maybe I can do it. That's, that's interesting. It, it's almost given everybody a DIY uh, sense of thing, doing things that you never thought you could do. Um, sure. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about the plot because um, you've described it as a book about inheritance, attraction, greed, infidelity, hoarding, and morality. And that's probably only half the words I would use to describe it. You also said that you were kind of conflicted about whether you wanted to write a memoir um, or, or fiction. And at that point, I think you said, um, most importantly in my decision against memoir and novelization was that what I truly wanted to write was a real deal novel. So can you explain to us what a re what you consider a real deal novel to be? Oh, it's funny. Um, I can I can sort of hear myself saying that. And <laughs> um, you know, a novel has a classically structured novel. The novels that I grew up adoring, whether that might be you know Pride and Prejudice or something Tale of Two Cities, has a, a fundamental structure to it. And this goes all the way back to Aristotle, who in his poetics, only the, the tragedy part of the poetics survived. But if you want to, the idea is, is that what's satisfying to a reader is change and transformation. So if you want a character to end up here, they got to start down here. And, and so that's the main plot, right? And then there's certain other things that make for a beautiful plot structure. And 
you can think of plot structure the way you would think of beautiful architecture. It works, it holds up the building, but there's also beauty to a beautiful building. So for one, and you think of Cinderella, you have reversal. Cinderella starts down here and she ends up up here. The change is both internal and external. And then the subplots are like little gears that work the main plot. So they're mirrors and they're gears. So if you think about like Charlotte Lucas in Pride and Prejudice, um, she is the, the person who's sort of the, the mirror of the anti-marriage. She's not marrying for love. She's marrying for security. We all know that. We still like her somehow. Not sure how that happens. But her going and being in this place with Mr. Collins is how our Elizabeth gets to that place. So it's a gear. And so... So all of those things, you know, when you start to study plot structure, make up a good and interesting plot and all of the gears work together. And there's a fundamental reversal. The bad people start out here and end up down here. The good people start down here and end up up here. And I wanted all that to me is a real deal novel, an arc of a plot that takes your, your, your heroine in my case from, you know, where she starts, which is kind of in a sucky place from a, spiritual standpoint to redemption and then all of these other plot wheels that make up the machinery of how that happens i thought your secondary characters were there i mean talk about the gears underneath i mean there's uh a lot of them relate to your own very own true life background and um you also hinted at a mystery that take that's in the book um, that you still kind of retain as a mystery. So I, I feel like I should confront you on air and say, tell me, tell me what happened, but I won't. But um, how, does your, how does your family react to the fact that there are true life events that are portrayed in, in fiction here? You know, I find that writers um, can obsess about that a little bit. Uh, I, so... Some of the family history, I come, I'm fourth generation in New York City. My, there's, this woman comes from a very wealthy family, which was the case for not in my, quite in my generation, but for sure in previous generations. My great grandfather was a very famous inventor and partnered with Thomas Edison to electrify New York. So in this story, that's where the money comes from. Her mother is a former fashion model, having come from a very working class background, which is in fact the case for me. My mother was a world famous model. So all of that is worked in the, 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 the death that you uh, refer to. I had a beloved aunt who committed suicide, but um, you know, was it a suicide sort of thing? So all of that became sort of like the color palette that I drew from, because there's a lot of drama there. What's interesting, though, I find that uh, people, they, you think they're going to read it literally, and, and people get it all wrong. Like, like, okay, my father obviously identified my mother in, in this book, and that's pretty, she was a world-famous fashion model. But like, I had a neighbor, I gave the book to someone in my building, and, and she came up to me and she said, I'm so glad I'm the yoga instructor. I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> And my father said the, 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 the mother's love interest is an NYPD cop named Bert. And my father said he'd read the novel, which was kind of tough. Dad's 91 and there's sex on the first page. So that, but he did. Anyway, <laughs> he loved the, you know. And then he said, uh, Bert, who's the NYPD cop, he said, you know, 
Bert used to have a saying, which is which is that a a hearse doesn't have a luggage rack. And I'm like, okay, first of all, great saying. I'm going <laughs> to use that in a novel. But who the heck do you think is Bert? <laughs> like he's totally made up character. You know, I use traits from NYPD. So so people get it all wrong. And that is something that I learned pretty quickly on when I was having people read beta versions of my novel, that people either thought it was way connected with me because I am not Delia. You know, I, she's so much more gutsy than I am. Like, I, I'm not. <laughs> but people are like, I didn't know you hold, held those views. It's like, I don't. It's a character. <laughs> and then other people reading themselves into characters. I'm like, that's not you. What? what? So... Yeah. Well, it's like it's like what does everyone bring to every book that they read? Their own background. Absolutely. Um, so I have one more question for you that I I hope you won't be mad. I've always wanted to ask authors this. So at the beginning, um, everybody, most authors write like their thank yous to um, to people. Some authors' thank yous go on for like three and four pages. They have to alphabetize the names because there's so many names. And half the time I read them and I go, you don't know this many people. You couldn't know them. I mean, you're sending thank yous out to, you know, like half the population of, of uh, Boston. You know, come on. So you didn't have a really long list. But when it comes down to doing that, I know you wouldn't make <laughs> make up names like I think that authors do sometimes, but how do you decide who to thank just out of curiosity? I mean, there's the obvious ones, your agent, you know, the person who at the publishing company, but then you've got, you know, a list of other people. How did, do you sit down and go, okay, who do I have to thank or does it flow or how does that happen? I, I have, it's funny that, that you mentioned it because I actually didn't have a struggle. It was really pretty clear to me um, who, if I had someone along the way who really gave me a their time, so that, as you say, there's the obvious ones. And then there are people who went out of their way to help me out in the journey, um, whether they um, were someone who, for example, I, I, was having, I was struggling with the manuscript and a woman by the name of Lynn Barrett who teaches pretty much at a conference is what I um, described as the, the mechanism by which you come up with a good plot. She spent a lot of time at conferences, like a lot of time when I would take her course, like, okay, let's go through this. So it was people who made, who made significant contributions and with, without whom I felt I couldn't have made it across the finish line. Well, the, it, I guess it takes a village to uh, put out a book because um, it's, I think it's wonderful that you had so many people helping you along the way. Are you in a writer's group and will you kind of uh, turn around and pay it forward for other writers? Well, for sure, I, I look for every opportunity to pay it forward. Um, and I am, I've been, you know, it's funny that you asked. So I started to do writer's conferences probably around 2010 where I, I hadn't really ever done that before. I was a little afraid because uh, I think that I didn't really know what to expect, but I think that people, 
you know, I, I used to joke that I don't want to go to a conference where everybody has an ego and is looking for an agent. I want to be the only person with an ego looking for an agent. <laughs> <laughs> Too much competition. So, but then I started to go to writers' conferences, especially RWA, where people were so right, romance writers of America. I'm really not a romance writer, but there it's a big tent, right? Mystery writers go to there. So, so that that I felt acceptance there, and I. And what I, what I did change, and this is really recent, and I find this absolutely fascinating. A friend of mine that I met through RWA said, do you want to form a plotting group? And I'm like, what's a plotting group? I mean, it sounds fascinating, but really, what is it? So she had done, she's got several books published, and she had heard about, I guess it's a thing. I didn't know it was a thing. She had known that plotting groups exist, and they follow a very formal structure. It's a certain number of people get together for, let's say, a weekend, three, four-day weekend. And it, it, what it's not is, here's my chapter, read my chapter. And I'm, I'm so happy to find that because when you're writing a novel, how is anybody supposed to comment on a chapter? You really have to know, you know, if you have a whole sweep of it done, someone can say this chapter doesn't fit. Right. But nobody, not, no human being is going to have that kind of time to devote to another human being writing. You never get your own writing done. So plotting group, you get together and every person, so it has to be limited, every person gets a 90-minute session with the other people. So in our case, it's four women and you sit down and you your plot can be very, you can be just plotting out a series. You can say, okay, I have a hairdresser and a firefighter, go. And then the other women and I want the, I, and, and then I, I, she's got this problem and he's got that problem and they get to, and the other people say, okay, maybe there could be alligators. What if the alligators arrive? <laughs> so you do this brainstorming, and you can come with your plot in any any form. Like so, for example, we did a, right before the pandemic, we did a, a meeting at a house on the Jersey Shore. It's you know March, early March, so nobody was there, and we sat together. And I have my new work in progress pretty well plotted out, and I had begun the reading. I mean the writing, and the wonderful woman in our group was like. Well, I that because I'm not a writer by trade. I have a computer company. Well, that's the the deep dark moment. That's not good enough. It needs to be dark. And the pinch point is that, so that we were. I got so much great information. You record all the sessions. So that's the kind of writing group I'm in now. And my my early experience with it is it's just the ticket. It sounds like it would just set off sparks. Oh my lord! We plotted ten novels in one weekend. Well, let's hope that we get to read your next one and, uh, and the other nine. That would be great. I'm sorry that we're so sorry that we're out of time, but um, I will put information about Greedy Heart um, up at the end of the show so that people will know where to buy it. And um, I'll also include your website if that's okay. And sure. it's been wonderful seeing you again with a published version. And I hope um, the next time we speak, it'll be for your second published novel and that we'll be beyond all this and healthy and um, everyone will be uh, back to normal with uh, some more justice for uh, Black Lives Matter. I had to throw that in there. Um, thank you, Anna, for coming uh, on with me today and for being my first post-lockdown guest. Oh, it was a delight. Best of luck to you. Safe health, safety, health, and justice. Thank totally. you. All right.
Okay, Bookstew viewers, I hope you enjoyed this first step back and out of my house, and it's been such a pleasure to speak to you and Anna and everybody other than my poor husband. <laughs> oh boy, it's been a trip being locked up for months, but we've come through it okay, and uh, I will see you next time.